Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 6 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm really excited to be bringing you this new season of shows coming to you on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. I have a great lineup of fascinating conversations with incredible musicians, songwriters, guitarists, steel guitarists, drummers, composers, who knows what else. I've been having an incredible time diving deep with these folks, and I know you're going to enjoy listening. Just a reminder that this year I've taken out the short song samples through the show, as things have gotten way more complicated as far as legal use of music goes, so I'll be making an accompanying Spotify playlist to each episode, which you'll find in the episode's show notes and at the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So anytime you hear this cute little slide guitar sound, you'll know there's a track to go along with it on the playlist. We have some new sponsors this year, but continue to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription. Patreon is a monthly payment of your choice, and when you sign up for that, you get a bit of added content as well as an ad-free version of the show to listen to. If you don't feel like kicking in any dough, that's cool too, but you can help by subscribing for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just spread the word by sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff, of course, at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, many thanks to our sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know that I sent you. They are Isotope, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, and Spectra 1964. Hey there, music nerds and everybody else. Welcome back to the show. This is episode number 137. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking to an absolute monster of the electric guitar. David Grissom is here. Well, not here, but you know what I mean. We had a great conversation, and I think you're all going to dig it. How's everyone doing out there? Things are heating up back over here, which is nice. Lots of studio work going on, which is really nice. And, you know, it's just a real honor when someone entrusts you to either produce or mix or play on their songs. It's a pretty thrilling process, and I love doing it. And, you know, I guess at this point in my life, I love it more than I, I love being on the road. Uh, not playing music, but the whole touring thing. Don't get me wrong, I still like doing that. But just the grind of all that traveling and the hassles involved, especially these days, are just, uh, I don't know, it's a bit much for this old geezer sometimes. And man, when I do get to dig in and work on sessions all day here instead of sitting in a van or a bus or a plane, I'm a pretty happy camper. So we're coming up on the end of season six. There's just four more shows, including this one. So don't forget, we have that pedal giveaway happening on the last week. And all Patreon subscribers are automatically entered to win that. And thanks to UnionTube and Transistor for giving it away. All you have to do is sign up to the Patreon and you will be entered automatically. 
What else? I have another album coming out. I made three, which I've mentioned over the pandemic, and I'm putting them out sort of staggered. Two of them are already out, Gone Long Gone and Phantom Threshold. And the third one is called Eyes Closed Dreaming, and it'll be out in March. And I've got some dates coming up with my band. That includes Jeremy Holmes on the bass, Joaquin Cooter on drums, and Daryl Havers. That's my band. And I hope to see you out there. You can get the scoop on any dates over at stevedawson.ca and look for the tour page. And also don't forget that the Hen House Hang is happening this September. The dates are September 25th through the 28th. And there are currently, I think, four spots left. So hit me up if you would like to come and hang and learn about recording music. It's going to be an amazing four days, totally unique, really fun. And we're really looking forward to putting it on. So there's four spots left. Come sign up if you want or ask me some questions about it. And I will tell you some answers. And also, before we get going, thanks to a couple people who donated to the show this week, David Carl and Jacob Sanders. That's very cool of you. Thank you so much, you guys. I did a record with David over the pandemic, and uh, he was one of the, the remote projects that we got down and greasy with. And, uh, you know, it was great to stay working and connected with everyone through that time. And it's really fun to see all that work come out now. That's sort of what's happening is like all that stuff is sort of funneling through and people are releasing those records. So it's great to see and hear. And the last thing I wanted to mention here before we get going is that a previous guest and one of my personal heroes, David Lindley, is not doing so great health-wise. And in order to help out with some medical bills, they've set up a place where you can donate to him or buy a t-shirt, which are actually really cool. And man, I can't imagine a world without David Lindley. And if you're like me, you're going to want to lend a hand. It's through a company called Custom Inc. Just Google Lindley Fundraiser and you'll find it. It's under Custom Inc. They're the company that puts the shirts together. And you can buy a shirt or just donate cash or a combo of both. Go help a feller out. All right, so David Grissom is on the show this week. Now, the cool thing about Grissom is he's a monster player. We all know that. And I know about his recent work because I've listened to his recent albums. And then, of course, his touring and album work with people like Joe Ely and John Mellencamp, which was back in the 90s. He played on huge records for Mellencamp, including Human Wheels, Big Daddy, and Whenever We Wanted. And all that stuff was mostly in the early 90s. And after he left that band, he started up a band with the guys from Stevie Ray Vaughan's band, Chris Layton and Tommy Shannon. They were called Storyville, really cool band. And he also played or recorded with the Allman Brothers, the Dixie Chicks, Robin Ford, Ringo Starr. That's already plenty. But wait, there's more. I guess what I was kind of oblivious to was his whole Nashville session career that was really substantial. For a good 10 years or so, it was kind of his main thing. So he kept kind of under the radar as far as like being in the public eye, but he was playing on tons of records, mostly here in Nashville. He was still living in Austin, but working here a lot. And some of his session work includes records with people like Trisha Yearwood, Martina McBride, Leanne Womack, Montgomery Gentry, Billy Ray Cyrus, Brooks and Dunn, all the biggies of the early 2000s. And then he did a bunch of studio work outside the usual Nashville circles with folks like Buddy Guy, John Mayall, Eliza Gilkison, Chris Isaac, Rita Coolidge, and then, of course, all his work with Mellencamp and Ely. Busy fella. So needless to say, we had a lot to talk about. I wanted to dig into that session scene in the early 2000s and see what was going on at that point, because that's really interesting. And we had a great talk about all the aspects of his career. And we also get into his signature Paul Reed Smith guitars a bit closer to the end, if you're into the gear thing. And uh, you can get all the info on David Grissom, his recordings, his live albums, and his weekly gig down in Austin at davidgrissom.com. All right, let's get down to it. Enjoy my conversation with David Grissom. 
to me, you've had a really interesting career that's had a lot of, you know, I, I don't know if ups and downs is the right word, but there's been a lot of like really high professional points. And I'm just wondering now, it seems like in the last, you know, 10, 15 years or so, you've really been able to focus on your own music more, which I would imagine for for you is pretty artistically fulfilling, but it's also like a, a big change from being a sideman for a good chunk of your career. And I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how that came about, like as far as just focusing on those solo recordings. And I know you've got a weekly gig at the Saxon, which is cool. Um, so is that something that like, I know the music industry has changed so much in the world that you worked in. Was this something that just kind of came naturally? Or were you like going out of your way to sort of put that part behind you and focus on your own music? I think it was a natural progression. You know, it's just a, a number of things. And it's some of it a lot of it revolves around Nashville, actually, because I was doing lots of sessions in Nashville from like 2000 to 2010, a lot, of, a lot of sessions and um, flying up to do them. And at the same time, I had a publishing deal with Carnival Music there and I wrote for them for about eight or nine years. And um, the session thing, you know, when the big Nashville flood happened, 2010, uh, was it was it 2010 yep all my gear was at soundcheck and oh, it was shit. underwater for uh you know two or three weeks and um i drove up three weeks later to get salvage what i could and drove it back home and uh it was just like that this weird sort of like the universe saying this is a good time to acknowledge that maybe your run is over here because <laughs> I, I'm I was a player who could um, I am a player that can, you know, I understand, at least at the time, certainly understood what was going on in Nashville musically. It, I could relate to it. Um, but yet I did something a little different. And, you know, it, I was more of a rock uh, guy. And so mm -hmm. a lot of times I'd be on sessions, there'd be two electric guitar players. I was the rock guy and there'd be Brent Mason or somebody like that would be there. There was definitely, I was not going to be picking up a Telecaster. Right. <laughs> um, you know, um, so, you know, I had a wonderful, wonderful run there uh, of sort of, coming in and doing a record with Blake Chancy and Paul Worley. And then they hired me for everything after that. And then it's the way Nashville is. Sometimes the word gets around and then people that I didn't know that really probably had never, didn't even know how I played were hiring me. And, um, so it sort of snowballed really. It snowballed definitely. And then, you know, I mean, at some point, if you're going to be a full-time session player, you I mean, you really have to do everything you, you really do. There's at some point, and there were three or four times I just flat out got busted. You know, there were like, I was asked to do something that was really not in my wheelhouse. And do you recall what that would have been specifically? Uh, you got a pretty big wheelhouse, man. I, I did. A, I mean, I remember doing a session with Brent Rowan was producing, which already is a guitar player. I'm like, how can I? <laughs> You know, he's like the most recorded guitar player, one of the two or three most recorded guitar players. And so there was this, I forget who the artist was, but it was like this real fast Western swing thing. And it, it had to be all, you know, they wanted all Travis picking and, and, and I don't do that. Right. So that was like one thing. And it was, you know, and it, it's just, you're at some point, if you don't have all everything together, 
uh, or at least the ability to fake your way through everything. I got good at faking my way through things that I was, mm-hmm. I'm not like a great finger picker either, but I can, I can, I did it, you know, cause you know, even electric guitar players have to bring an acoustic yeah. and you're going to be asked to play acoustic probably on every session, at least one or two songs, For sure. whether it's like, you know, two or three guys over the same microphone trying to get a stack of acoustics or whatever. I mean, it's different every time, but, um, that wasn't really the thing. It was more just a question of, you know, a little bit of changing of the guard and not living there. The cost to fly me up, the CD sales started to go down. Budgets started to go down. New producers came in. Younger, great guitar players moved to town. Yep. Uh, younger artists want to work with younger players. You know, it's uh, it was all the above. But the flood was this cataclysmic uh, message from... Uh, <laughs> from above from God, you know to um, maybe this is it and also i was you know writing a lot i was writing a lot of songs there when i would go to re- do sessions i would book a lot of writing appointments and stay a couple of extra days and oh, yeah? I wrote some phenomenal writers i mean i learned so much did um, you enjoy that process the co-writing thing i did i enjoyed it a lot um, oh, okay and uh you know uh but what i found was i was writing songs for other people I wasn't writing, you know, songs that I would really put on my records. I wasn't doing records yet, but my thought, you know, I felt something inside of me was like, man, I need to, I got to, I miss, uh, you know, I did the couple of Dixie Chicks tours. Then I was their MD at the time, band leader, whatever. And it was awesome, but it was the same show every night, you know, Uh, and as an improviser that can wear on you wear on you a little bit and I, sure. i've always th- thrived on improvising um so uh i just at this sort of the uh, the culmination of that writing period of sort of getting a little burnt on that too of writing songs that were that i was proud of and liked and uh but they really weren't songs that i would do it just sort of and then the then the flood and the as i said the changing of the guard it just seemed like a logical progression to maybe take a step away and come back to austin and maybe focus more on my thing uh-huh. so when you say the changing of the guard like i realized that yeah like music styles were shifting and country music was definitely changing around that time too were you noticing like your workload was going down were you getting called less all of a sudden or did you just sort of see the writing on the wall no i think i i think it was both i think okay. it was both um you noticed it dwindling a couple of producers that hired me for everything stopped calling me and and like the producers that had, didn't really even know how i played they would call me because other people were hiring me that that stopped happening um and a lot of the producers i worked for were not doing near as many records as well so right. um all, all those things yeah. And at some point, you know, if you the thing that sort of made I think got me in the door to begin with was that I kind of was able to uh, that I understood. I mean, I grew up with a lot of country music and, you know, I played with Camp and all those el- all these elements that were being used at the time that um, at some point when you are a little maybe a little different sounding that you that runs its course. And there's an element to being a session player that requires you to maybe be, uh, you know, there's a more of a chameleon quality that is required. And yeah. um, I just, uh, you know, maybe I'm not that, I don't really 
I'm not enough of a chameleon, but it was, I, you know what I tell you, it was like the most awesome time making records in Nashville with, with those guys, with, with the best play, you know, as good a players I've ever played with and the energy of just everybody cutting together on the floor really fast and you know, like my Greg Moore, the dr- drummer that I worked with all the time, who's yeah. one of the, my favorite people on on the planet and favorite drummers. He said, as he says, even when it sucks, it's great. <laughs> and it, I, you know, it, that was true. I really loved doing that. I, I really did love that process and playing with good players. And I had to up my game. Like, I got better the first day. I mean, literally, the first t- the first session I was on was a John Anderson. The first master session I did, outside of like a Joe Ely thing, mm-hmm. you know, ten years earlier or whatever for yeah. Tony Brown or something like that. But my little run up there started on a John Anderson record. Wow, that's a nice uh, little start. That Blake Chancy and Paul Worley produced, and it was Blake got me up there for it, and it's an awesome record. It's got a like the my favorite version of Atlantic City. On oh yeah ever on it um, okay so but i mean the very first song this is like my first day and um the very first song you know they play the demo and i'm just kind of staring at the chart and thinking about you know what i might play and everything and the song ends and i look up and nobody else nobody's in the room they're all out there ready to go <laughs> they're all sitting at their chairs i'm like holy shit i mean this is like they're not fooling around here so i mean like literally the first day i got i got the picture it's like this is this is another level and you know you need to kind of like concentrate and and but i mean and that it was an uh, you know a wonderful wonderful experience and from a writing standpoint it was i learned so much from uh about the craft of it from from guys and and women who had done it a lot more than me. And, um, you know, I got Chris Stapleton, when he moved to town, we wrote a lot, you know, several songs together, eight or or 10 songs together. And uh, a couple of those songs are on my records. Oh, uh, are they? Okay. Which ones are those? uh, We wrote a song. There's a song called Georgia Girl that's on one of mine. And then a song called Satisfied, which is on... Uh, a record of mine and then also Rita Coolidge covered that and uh, amazing just produced named Mike Burris cut it and then we got a you know Montgomery Gentry cut and uh, he's a force of nature I mean I knew from day one that this guy is like the real deal not only the real deal but just like there's something he's definitely the real deal but there was something going on that was so powerful and deep um it was it was really fun riding with him. How did you know Paul Worley and and I can't remember the name of the other guy that you said produced that John Anderson record? Like, what was your connection to the that studio scene in the first place, and what made them call you for that? Well, I I knew I didn't know Paul Worley. I knew Blake Chancy. Okay. And Blake and Paul worked together a lot. They did the first uh, two Dixie Chicks records and in a million other records together. I mean. So did you know them through the Dixie Chicks? Was that sort of the... No, it was before the Dixie Chicks. Okay. So I knew Blake. Blake uh, would come to Austin a lot, and he was a big fan of Austin stuff. And Blake really likes raw, looser, funkier stuff. And, you know, he he knew what I'd done with Ely. And then, like, I worked with... I think I worked on a Charlie Robinson record that he produced 
maybe we had we had done some peripheral stuff and maybe he came down and did like a Kevin Fowler record. I don't know, an Austin guy named Kevin Fowler, but he's the one that got me on the session. OK. And, uh, it, you know, like literally after that session, he called me for everything for a period of time. Amazing. So you get your run. And, and you know, there are guys that, though, I mean, I've had 30, 40 year runs there. You know, Brent Mason, you know, uh, there's plenty of guys that are going to have that. You know, Rob McNally. Uh, there's a lot. You know, Dan Dugmore's been there. Uh, Michael Rhodes, you, you, you know. Yeah. Tim Lauer, Mike Rojas. I mean, these guys, there's so many that will continue. Tom Bukovac, I mean, they're so good and so versatile that. Uh, they'll have that long run for sure. You know, it's it's funny. I don't I don't think I've talked to very many contemporary session guys. Like the the recording guys that I've had on this show are more like from two to three generations before where what you're talking about. So let's just talk about that for a minute. Maybe you know, going from that session on, let's talk about what a what a session for contemporary at that time. So this we're talking more like what oh five to. 2010 kind of thing 2000 like around 2000, 2000. So, you, so you had a good 10-year run up here let's talk about a typical day in the studio so you'd come up from austin would you come up for just one session or were you coming up for like a week at a time or what was your vibe there uh, it was all it varied all the time okay. i mean I, I i would come up for normally you know a record would get divided into two or three blocks of recording back okay. then and we would do two or three uh sessions a day so maybe there would be two days at most three days on on a project and we would do one or two songs generally in a session which you know if you're doing demos you're doing four to six songs in a session so just it's, plowing through them the yeah. irony is that you're getting paid three times as much but you're working you know theoretically not working as hard but that's not really true i mean you know when you a, a great producer will not rush a sure. record, you know, and, and back then when you did a master session, that was going to be the record. Now, I think a lot of stuff is getting cut as demos. And if they hear the hit or the single, then they'll upgrade you to single scale master or whatever. But oh, does that happen quite a bit where you get upgraded? It happens from... a lot now, as I understand it. Um, huh. in I've, fact, never, no, I've never seen that. Well, I mean, I, I, that's what I'm hearing through the grapevine, but I, <laughs> okay. and I, I could be wrong because I'm not there doing it. But um, back then, you know, it was it was I mean, looking back on it and even at the time, I'm, I was aware that I was it was an incredible um, opportunity and blessing to be, you know, flying into Nashville, making double scale, playing with the best players in town awesome. and getting hired to sort of do my thing, you know, but. You know, yeah. it's always, you know, you're always playing for the song. I mean, then I, you know, I never walked in the door and said, I'm doing my thing. It was like, <laughs> I want to, you know, let's, let's work. You know, it's, it's about, it's a team sport. And, yeah. uh, okay. So you get to town, you come into the studio there, you probably got to know the cast of characters like Greg Morrow or, um, uh, yeah, you well. know, whoever the, the other players may have been, you would get to know those guys. So, uh, in general, would the artist be there for those sessions yeah. or they would Always. be? Okay. Yeah. Always. Um, singing or just like there? Singing. Singing. Okay. Because um, I, I mean, I don't, I, I can't remember a session where the artist wasn't there unless I was doing an overdub. Right. If it was like, you know, we cut the tracks and then Blake says, we're going to go over and put some solos on two or three songs that then the artist wouldn't be there generally. Okay. 
So you go, in, like you're in the control room or whatever with everybody, everyone's listening, you've got the charts, the number charts. Was that something that was new to you, the number charts thing, or had no. you done that before? No, I've done that before. Okay, so that was nothing terribly new. That was not hard. Um, and so what's your first, like, do you have a, coming in as David Grissom, do you have a role generally, I guess you're going to start on electric guitar, or would it depend on the song or like was there usually an acoustic guitar specifically there a player there to do that and you wouldn't do that or what was there was, there's almost always an acoustic guitar player mm-hmm. almost i mean i can't remember a session where there wasn't an acoustic guitar player there now on a couple of i think maybe maybe there was you know a couple of things that blake chancy produced where it would be like me and pat buchanan yep. and we would take turns playing acoustic um but in general, it, there's always, almost always uh, an acoustic player or someone who is equally versed in acoustic and electric that could shift back and forth. Um, you know, it, it's it's a really specialized, people think, oh, yeah. you play guitar. Well, I mean, acoustic guitar, there are so many nuanced I know. styles of it that it it's a very specialized thing. And I mean, if you look at guys that, just play acoustic and or 90% of the time they're playing acoustic it's they're on a level that is like for 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 even for the best electric guitar players is kind of unapproachable really you know it's it's crazy to think like that but it's true yeah, yeah. i mean like brian sutton um you know there's just the, he's probably the top call acoustic guy in town i would say these days yeah when i was there he wasn't he was i was on some sessions with him but he was not main one of the main guys that i worked with but now i think i gather he's doing yeah i think back back in your day he was more like on the road you know he I was don't think he, yeah yeah but I, I am in awe of his playing I, he's one of my favorite guitar players yeah he's a monster. And it's, the, it's the pocket man it's the feel that's what it comes down to it's the feel like the b james lowry uh used to play acoustic on a lot of things that i would play on and um on one session, he wanted to switch electric and acoustic. And I'm like, this is this guy's like the best. <laughs> so I think we did it or we just did part of it that way. And he was like, man, that's it. You got the it's the in between stuff. You know, uh-huh. uh, it's the feel. It's the in between stuff. So you, he said, you got it. And I was like, well, I feel good. Did you think I've got it? I mean, that you know, for you to tell me. <laughs> but, but, you know, even like it's, you know, just like it, like at a slow tempo, just the even eighth note strumming thing. People think, hard, that's man. Easy. People think that's easy, but to make it feel good and have it pocketed and it's all about the feel mm-hmm. and uh, the confidence to, 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 to be able to do that. It's, it's a specialized skill. Uh, okay. So there's a, there's an acoustic player there. Generally the artist is there, drums, bass, obviously you're there. Do you have your rig there? Or are you like, do you have a, are you backlining stuff for Nashville or like, how are you dealing with your equipment? No, I had a whole, I had a whole set of gear there and okay. cartridge. And you it, just it left was, it. I just left it all there. Yeah. I mean, you know, 12 guitars, you have to have everything. I mean, you have yeah. to have six string bass, baritone, 12 electric 12. Yeah. You have to have Atelier, Strata, Les Paul, PRS, you, you, you Gretsch, you've got to have everything. And then an acoustic, um, so I would generally have twelve, about twelve guitars and about three heads in a one speaker cabinet, and but I kept it all there. I can't. I I flew up later. I came up like I did some Buddy Guy records where I didn't have all my stuff up there, and it's just really nerve wracking to try to borrow gear and you don't know if it's going to work. And yeah. 
So yeah. how long was it before you actually moved all your shit up here? Like right away. Like I, 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 I think I, I don't know how, I think maybe, uh, I don't think I rented a van or anything, but I, I think I, um, I think what I did was I ordered a big guitar trunk in Nashville. Yeah. Then I drove up. Um, I remember go. Yeah. It was like right after the John Anderson record, we did a Montgomery Gentry record and, uh, that was uh that was greg on drums chuck lavelle on keys me and oh, pat man. buchanan on guitar paul worley i think was playing acoustic which he's like you know killer ass acoustic player and um i believe it was mark hill on bass um but i think i drove all my st- as much as i could get into my jeep up there and then so i got a trunk yeah. And maybe I ordered a 412 case because I always used a 412 cabinet, which was not that common. Um, and from then on, I just, you know, left kept it all up, kept it all up there. So I had like so I had like a whole set of gear here, a whole set of gear for the road and a whole set of gear in Nashville. And I accumulated a lot of junk. Yeah. I mean, a lot of guitars and I've just sort of been going through lately weeding out a little bit. Yeah, I bet. Instinctually, when you're sitting there, you know, you know, and the producer knows, and the other musicians know that you're not going to play the song that many times. You got to be like, as you're hearing the song for the first time, are you already thinking like how you're going to approach it? If you're going to use a capo, if you're going to use open string, like that's sort of a big part of what you do too. Like with your lead playing, you're always, you've sort of got like a really cool there's a like a, a way that you let open strings ring out over fretted notes and things like that. Is that something that you're thinking about as you're hearing the song for the first time? Or from the minute the song starts playing, I'm thinking about okay. what I'm going to play, and I'm not thinking about my solo. I'm not thinking about that whatsoever. I'm thinking yep. about parts that will enhance the song, mm-hmm. that will work with the vocal, and um, I'm thinking two or three parts ahead. I'm thinking, you know, depending on you know, if there's, if I know that pe- the steel, pedal steel and, um, and, you know, Dan Dugmore, I work with a lot and he would play electric too. Sometimes, sometimes we had three electric players, yeah. like on the Gun- Gumber Gentry stuff, he was there. And there were times when me, Pappy Cannon and Dan would all play electric guitar, but normally he was playing steel or lap steel. So that when you have that much going on, you think differently, but sometimes I would be the only electric player there. Mm-hmm. And e- even if it, there was one other electric player, I was thinking potentially three parts ahead. So I was thinking like yeah. left, right, and another part after that and i was always you know what key is the song in and i would you know never was i do it with a guitar in my hand it was always hearing the parts Mm -hmm. and then you know that involved too what capo position you know is am i going to use a capo because every key has a personality that's the way i think about it and you know I hear this lick, and if I voiced it out of a C position, it may be way cooler than voicing it out of an open E tuning. Totally. Or it could be cool on a guitar that was tuned down a whole step. That was another thing. I kept a guitar tuned down a whole step, and a guitar that was tuned down a minor third. Oh, wow. So these are only a half step apart, but like with them down a minor third, your G chord is an E. Yeah. So that's a completely different sound from a baritone guitar. So it was all that. And I was thinking, how is this going to work? But then until you get on the floor and hear what people are starting to do, you just have to, you know, adapt. How much time would there be there at that point where you've got, you've got the song, you've got the chart, people are ready to go. If you're wanting to screw around getting a, a part together, how much time do you have? You don't. 
no time. <laughs> you really don't. You might have. I mean, it's really the matter. How much time does it take for people to talk? Sometimes the producer might want to talk through things with with the drummer yeah. or or the drummer might want to set up a loop or maybe we want to get a weird drum sound or maybe they want to, you know, put tape on the piano strings or something like that. You've got that time. Mm-hmm. But other times it was just like walk out. Yeah. And um, and a lot of times there would be a demo that was like, you know, great guys doing demos up there. You had something worked out already. And the producer might say, I want exactly that signature lick, or they wouldn't say anything, which meant you could just re- you had to read their body language. And it's like, if they were digging what was going on and it felt good to me, I could, I could go, I could copy exactly what the guy played. Or in most times I would, uh, use that as a starting point and play it the way I would play it and maybe change the, you know, use an open tuning or a different capo position or whatever it, but there were times when you hear a demo when undeniably the part that the guy on the demo session came up with was great. Right. Now, you know, you go in and the there's pre-pro, you know, with loops and parts that are already played that the, there's five people that write the songs and one guy's the track guy, one guy's the lyric guy, one guy's the melody guy, one guy's the programmer. So you're kind of, it's a completely different thing now. Yes. Yes. So what about the layered parts? Like the, uh, you know, if you're thinking of three, four guitar parts, is that something that you have to sell the producer or the artist on, or is it understood that you're going to, that you're going to go back and, and, add more after the live track goes down like how how does that actually play out for you it, well it's either uh we get the track and producer says dave you got another part and i say yep mm-hmm. only right answer and or, <laughs> it's or right he doesn't answer. say anything and i said can i can i try something can i add something while you know if someone else is going to lay something down you never want to like uh but you have to just learn when to say these things. Like if, if somebody's already doing an overdub and I have an idea, I'll say, can I go with on another track with Dan or, who, or with Pat or whoever it is? And they either love it or they hate it. But you got to generally the guitar players don't get out of the chair right away. Right. Bass right. player and drummer get the track. Yeah. So they got the, you know. They're done. They're, they got the pressure that they have to get the take and there's no, there's very little punching in on the drums, but they, they, there is some punching in sometimes, but generally not with those guys. Yeah. Um, so the guitar players stay in sometimes in the keyboard players, you know, we stay out there and add a part or double or and play a solo. I mean, you know, uh, and if you're doing, if you're going to do a solo, do you generally leave that for an overdub or do you just go for it on, on the live, live track? Um, it depends. On what? It really depends on the on the song and on the vibe. And if the producer wants, you know, says go ahead and do it. Sometimes they don't say anything, and and you go you go ahead and do it anyway because it feels right. And then they if they don't want you to do it, they say wait till later. Then that next take you don't do it. I mean, it, but you're there. You get hired because you're supposed to know what you're doing, and you're going to add something and bring something to it. I mean, that you wouldn't be there if you didn't. Right. Uh, but there is a lot of, um, you know, learning to read the room and learning how producers work. And um, that's an interesting thing, too, because that's really true. Like you have to kind of know you definitely have to read body language. And yeah, that's a that's a real part of the job. I think that's a real skill. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is. <laughs> was that was that was that something that you learned in Nashville, or did you kind of pick that up along the way before you ever got here in the first place? Uh, well, I think I picked it up to some degree. I mean, with you know, I did three records with John Mellencamp, and that was always a little walking on eggshells. You know, you you mm-hmm. really had to be on your toes and know what he was thinking and if he said i you know you learn i learned there very quickly that if he made a suggestion it wasn't really a suggestion okay <laughs> uh, and and i found that you know like in in so i mean i had to have a, a certain degree of all of what we're talking about together to make it through the first session yep and then i learned more as we went along and um it's it's i think if I continued to had continued to do it, I would have learned more and I probably would have approached if I'd gone further, approached things even in a little different way. I think that there's a, um, you know, there's an element to everybody's personality that makes them play a certain way. I mean, it comes, their personality comes out and they're playing. And, um, I don't know, there were times, there were probably a few times that, I mean, I, I don't know how to put this, but you know, I got, I get really, I mean, if I'm really into the song and the track, I get pretty excited. Um, yeah. Well, that's so, a good thing. That's what you want. As yeah. A- yeah it, it is a good thing, but sometimes maybe you, you, you could just remain quiet <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you're in the control room and you're next to the artist and maybe they don't really know you that well. And you could just shut up, you know, like I could have uh-huh. just, you know, shut up. It would might've been better if I just shut up and not said anything <laughs> at that moment. Uh, those are subtle things that's like whether you know that at the next production meeting the artist says you know that guitar player i'm not sure maybe not the next time it could have been because you know you talk too much in the control room or whatever but right um i drank i used to drink a lot of coffee and loved the energy of it all and we really tried to bring it as much as i could every time and you know you just got to learn there's a time for that. And, you know, usually it's when you have your instrument in your hand. <laughs> Did it ever feel like a grind to you? Like the whole process of doing, you know, three sessions, like a full day of session followed by another, like you were into it. Yeah, I was totally into it uh, at that level, you know, yeah. um, because it wasn't the grind of we're doing five songs in three hours and you're going to come up with the signature lick on all five of those songs. <laughs> And then you're going to do it two more times that day. So it's like 15 songs. You have to come up with the signature lick or whatever. Yeah. That's, that's the grind that, that, but no, for me, it was, I loved every minute of it, man. Oh, that's so cool, man. Loved. I loved, um, I got so it was just such a thrill. And plus I got, I made, uh, develop these friendships with these phenomenal players that, you know, everybody that plays on records in Nashville and that works a lot, they would not be there all. They would not have these careers that go on for decades if they weren't badass quality. I mean, badass musicians is a given, but they were, you know, just like great people. The hang and, too. Right. Yeah, of course. The hang yeah. is great. And, uh, I just had so much fun. And then, you know, the hang afterwards, that was a big part of it too, you know, right. and, and with certain acts, it's like, if you might, be a good idea to go stay out till two in the morning and, <laughs> and hit it hard you know that was part of the the culture too uh did you ever have a place up here were you ever coming up so much that you just rented an apartment or anything no but i had regular hangs yeah yeah <laughs> a regular hotel and a regular couple of bars that i that where I, which ones where were you staying where were you hanging 
I used to stay at the Hampton Inn on, uh, is it West End? And then there was the place across the street that the brewery, I don't even think it's there anymore. Oh, but yeah, I, would, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I'd get in on Sunday night and to, to the Hampton Inn and I'd walk across the street. Yeah. Can't, I can't remember the name of the place, but they had like beer on cask. It was like for real beer. Nice. And I would just go over and sit and have two or three. And yeah. it was usually a Sunday night. So it was really quiet in there. And then show up Monday, you know, have a rent car and go to the studio the next day. And yeah. it's like, you don't know who's going to be there. And living uh, the dream, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Living the dream. And, Believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so you did the John Anderson Montgomery Gentry, and then what were some, what were a few of the other highlights for you, like going forward from there in the in those Nashville years for you? Oh man, you're going to test my memory. Uh, <laughs> there must be a few that stick out as being like musically great, or like the Hang was great, or something like. Yeah, I mean, um, the Hang was always great. Um, yeah. I mean, I did, you know, it, it, the vibe of the session was really dictated by the producer, uh-huh. you know, who, who that producer hired, what their, um, you know, some guys are a little more serious and buckling down and this needs to be platinum. This needs to go platinum for sure. And other guys are just like, let's have fun. And right. um, so that would, that would dictate um, a lot of the, the, you know, the atmosphere in the studio and then what you did after the session and, yeah. Um, but man, I, I mean, everything I did was like, it was fun. Um, did people think that you lived in Nashville? Some people did. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Bet. I remember Jerry McPherson, you know, great, incredible guitar player that I did a bunch of sessions with one when he found out I didn't live there and he goes, oh, man, <laughs> I thought you were one of the cats. And I was like thinking, does that mean I'm not, uh, that, that I, I'm, like I'm on on probation, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and then I did a, um, like, you know, this is crazy shit. I like, I, I get a call from Tony Brown's secretary wants to know if I can come, you know, to fly. They flew me up to just overdub on a Brooks and Dunn record. Mm-hmm. I never played on their stuff before. And, uh, I was doing, I did like kicks Brooks songs first. And then Ronnie Dunn got there and I, I, they had the microphone open and they were doing, they did doing a playback or whatever. And I hear running in and goes pretty good for an out of towner. <laughs> you know, I mean, like just hanging it over your head forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, why didn't you ever move here? It seems like you had tons of work, like probably more work here than you did in Austin. You just love Austin and that's your home. I, I, guess. I, I love Austin. I really mm-hmm. do. I like, I like it here a lot, but you know, um, Paul Lyme, the drum, the drummer, you know, d- that I worked with a lot and he, he moved from LA, you know, he did all those Lionel Richie records and, you know, just a, he was, he was a big LA guy and moved to Nashville and then was a big Nashville guy. And he said, he told me, he said, man, don't move here. Really? <laughs> You're doing all the cool stuff. <laughs> don't move here. If you move here, you'll just be another guy in town. Right. Right. And I mean, there's something to be said about that. I think there's something to be said for that. But I don't think you can have a sustained career, especially now, if you don't live in Nashville. I mean, you got to make the commitment to be part of the community. And, um, but so it wasn't like I didn't want to live in Nashville. It was just that my wife and I are pretty entrenched here. And yep, I get that. Uh, we built at the time we had just built a house. And uh, there's something about Austin that, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I really became a musician here and yeah. so many great memories. And there's, it's a, 
it's a guitar town and it's a live music town and I can play pretty, you know, I can play as loud as I want. Nobody says, <laughs> and, um, so it's just, it's, uh, yeah. One more question about the Nashville session scene is like, so guitar tone wise, how much time would you have to mess around with like, you know, even moving a mic or swapping out a head? Are you just going off instinct and just like committing and just saying like this, I'm, I'm doing this and this is it. And, yeah. and yeah. you basically would rarely hear from anybody to change anything or would that happen? It would happen. I okay. mean, you know, like, Blake's thing was, Dave, I think we need to put that tone in rehab. <laughs> you know, because I was always leaning towards, uh, you know, a crunchier thing than was normal. Um, I remember one time Billy Joe Shaver kind of got mad at me because he says, is there any clean in that rig? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I can I just ask and I'll turn. Yeah, I will make it clean. I can do that. But, you know, um, so, yeah, it's with a few exceptions. It was you expect. I mean, if you have to ask. Yeah. I don't know, man. Maybe you don't, you know, it's just if everybody's asking, hey, do you like my sound or do you, should I use a thinner pick or is it, you know, it'll, all say, it'll take for stuff, fucking ever. It, it takes forever and you're taking yeah. away from the whole thing. It's just like go out and believe, you know, do, do what feels right to you and you're hired because you generally are able to, you know, yeah. produce that. And um, so, no, I mean, you know, I would like, you know, I, the rookie mistake, my my big rookie mistake, again, early on, um, that I learned, you know, you just, it's funny how one little thing can teach you so much. Once it, we were on a session and it was taking a long time, an unusually long time between when we heard the demo and when we cut the track. And I wasn't sure what I was going to play. And Brent Mason was on the session and it was one of the first times I'd worked with him. And so I'm like, I'm second guitar player. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of keep watching What's he gonna? What instrument? What's, what's he gonna play? A telly? What's he gonna play? And he just seemed to be not not really committing. And I just said, "Hey, man, what what are you gonna play?" And he looked at me. He goes, "I don't know." <laughs> and right there, it was like that. Right there, you just don't do that. You don't ask. And if you have to ask, you don't. Again, you, you may not. It may be that you. You're yeah. in the wrong spot. So he probably knew exactly, and he just didn't want to tell you. Or just... no, he, I think he was teaching me a lesson. <laughs> yeah. In a valuable lesson, which I appreciate. And yeah. so it was like, that was, that was a whole college semester of music school. Right there in that sentence. In three words, I don't know. Did you ever feel like you blew it? Like, did you ever walk away from a session at the end of a day and just be like, oh God, what am I doing here? I, I just, I didn't deliver. Did that ever, did you ever feel like that? Yeah. Two or three times. Really? And it wasn't the whole session, but it was like one on one song like I remember I did a record. Um, I think it was a band, the band Blackhawk. This was early on. And yeah. they, we, yeah, I was the only guy that wasn't in their band that was there. So they brought me in as sort of the ringer yep. to augment their band. And it all went well until one day we were doing over. They brought me back in to do overdubs. And it was just me and the producer. And we get like to the last song and the producer says, okay, on this song, they want you to play exactly the solo that I did on the demo. And the guy was like a shredder. Right. And I, and I sat there for 20 minutes trying to figure it out. And I, it was just like a technique that I didn't have. I mean, I'm not yeah. really a shredding guy. And it was some sort of like 90s rock shred technique. It wasn't tapping, but I couldn't get it. And, you know, he's like, after a certain point, it's like, 
no problem. I'll get somebody else to come in and do that. And then you're just like totally deflated. Yeah, like, right. You know, yeah. the, the other 95% of the, of the day that went great. It's like, that's all you remember. Doesn't, doesn't matter. So, you know, maybe two or three <laughs> times, but I've talked to, you know, I talked to a couple of other guys that I'm not going to name names, but the guys have been, a couple of guys have been doing it a long time. And they, they, they share that with me too, that, you know, it's mm-hmm. like once a year, it's like it's oh it's happening it's just like this show is brought to you by the good folks at isotope who make incredible plug-in software for any music or dialogue recording situation among other things they make a very unique suite of software called rx which you can use to surgically repair almost any kind of issue in a recording whether it's removing electrical hum unwanted noise vocal plosives or almost anything you can throw at it I use Isotope RX on every mix in one way or another, and I love that I can get in there on guitar tracks that I'm doing and running through my crazy old tube amps and get rid of the hum and noise without affecting the actual tone of the guitar. You can buy their plugins outright or get a subscription to keep up to date on all their latest versions. Right now, they're offering listeners a 10% discount on any of their plugins when you use the code SOULPOD10 at checkout. So head on over to isotope.com slash soulpod, and you'll see the links right there to get the discount or an extended 30-day trial of their subscription service of Music Production Suite Pro. We're also brought to you this season by Black Mountain Picks. These are unique spring-loaded thumb picks that are super comfortable and adaptable. I've been using them for a couple years now, and I absolutely love them. They come in medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and with regular or extra-tight spring tension. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. Thanks to our other sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor. They're known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing, both on stage and in the studio. I use their Sonebender Fuzz pedal, the Moore pedal, and the Swindle Overdrive pedal all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find them at uniontone.com. And thanks to Spectra 1964. For over 50 years, Spectra 1964 has established a reputation of creating some of the most innovative recording equipment on the market today. From the legendary V610, C610, and 611 complimenter units to the new 500 series lunchbox mic pre's and EQs, Spectra 1964 continues the legacy of providing incredible recording products for the home or professional studio. Check them out at spectra1964.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang. It's a four-day immersive recording experience right here with me at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville on September 19 to 22, 2022. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll put you up in a groovy hotel, feed you some glorious food, show you the ropes of recording roots and Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info on that at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then, let's get back to the show. It can't, they can't always be great days, right? Like you have to. Well, they can't always be great days, but I guess my, what I was mentioning earlier about this being a chameleon, it's like, if you're going to work for 30 years in Nashville or 10 or 15 or 20 years and be a session player, you've got to be able to do things that you might only do once a year. Like, I mean, I, I remember seeing Brent Mason, pull a gut string guitar out of his case and go in and convincingly play flamenco guitar. Wow. And I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, I mean, you're like the best chicken picker on the planet and now you're playing convincing flamenco guitar. So it's that kind of thing. Yeah. 
you know, you're going to get asked to do things. And, and for me, my, the thing that always put my spot, you know, I always did a double take. was like, Dave, play slide on this. Cause I don't, and I'm not, I just don't play slide. Great. And I've heard, I'm, I've heard you say that that's like your Achilles heel. Well, it is, <laughs> you know, if I would practice it, I could get it together. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you could. Fairly quickly, but it, it, you know, um, I was always, I loved it when Dan Dugmore was on the session. Pressure's or, off. Or Pat Buchanan, because it was like, <laughs> they got it. There, I won't be, I won't have to play slide. If you're the only guitar player and they're like, you know what would be great here is a slide guitar part, and you're just like, oh God, but you would do it or you, you would say, I, I, okay. No, I would do it. Yep. I would do it and I could pull it off. I mean, yep. I would, I would pull it off at the end of the day, but I would always, it wasn't your comfort zone. It, it wasn't really in my comfort zone, but there, the, you know, you can't, you got at some point you there's only so many hours in the day and it's rare to have a player a musician that can do everything totally it also has an identifiable sound and style i mean it's so at some point i never really like made the choice but i realized that that's what i had done was that i'd sort of well once i realized that maybe the reason i was getting hired was because i did do something a little different mm -hmm. and then one th a, a confluence of things. It's just I just prefer. It's just more rewarding for me to have a thing that I do that's kind of my thing. And I've done, I've been so lucky to do so many sessions, and that um, I don't really feel like, oh no, I'm never going to do sessions again because I still do a lot of sessions here and yeah. home studio. People send me stuff, but it, you know, I, I write songs and I play with my band and I go improvise and I just, that's kind of the more the focus of what I do now. And yeah, I yeah for sure. So I'm, it's not a requirement that I do be able to Travis pick. Right. Just backing up from there, like 10 years prior to your run in Nashville, you got a gig, the gig with Mellencamp. I don't know how that came about. Maybe you could tell me a bit about that. But so you started playing with him in the early '90s, I think, right? How yeah. was how was making records with him? It must have been a totally different experience than what you had in Nashville. Both a different era, but also like different approach and different kind of music. Yeah, I mean, it was different because we would do one song a day and from start to finish, and generally. Yeah. Almost, like on, on at least half the time, he would have the entire band there, including background singer. Um, and we would, he it would start with him coming in with an acoustic guitar and playing us this folk song. Yeah. And then immediately you were, you know, in about half the time it was like that we were, you know, given this measure of comfort and confidence by him saying, guys, this is the best song I've ever written. And if you fuck it up, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> So that was like, you know, that was how you sort of got started. The, the day got started. Uh -huh. um, Had you been playing in his band for a while or were you new to his project when you, because uh, whenever we wanted was the record. That was the first record, right? Well, yeah, that was the first full record. And I was in the band at that point, but we okay. hadn't done any, it really, we hadn't done any gigs when we made that record. But before that, um, I went up and played on the record before, which was called Big Daddy. Oh, and okay. I, did, I did four songs on that because larry crane his guitar player other guitar player at the time was not available so it was like john was like well i want to record call 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 that guy that used to work at the record store 
and I, you know, they all, I knew that all the guys in the band and I played in a band with Kenny Aronoff before he was with Mellencamp and I knew Mike Wanchick. And so they called me and I went up there and I cut four songs and it went well, mm-hmm. apparently, because when Larry left the band, um, a year later, they just called me and said, do you want to be in the band? It wasn't, there was no audition. Really? And, um, so very shortly, very shortly after I got up there, we started making whatever we wanted. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was basically a song a day. You were plowing through them like that. And so mm-hmm. did the whole record take a couple of weeks? Uh, well, we would generally do it. I think we did that. You know, it's hard to remember exactly uh, on, on that record. It probably took a couple of weeks, but maybe it was two trips, you know, okay. like I would go do five songs and then come back and do five more. Where were uh, you? Where'd you record? At his place in Indiana. Oh, he has a studio. He has a studio in Bloomington, Indiana. And um, it's a great room. It has a sound. You know, a lot of those records, those uh, like pink houses and all that stuff, the drum sound is comes from Kenny Aronoff creating the sound. But that's the room getting that room sound in there. So ironically, when on whenever we wanted, John decided and John. I. I we could talk for a long time about what I learned from John, but he, he, you know, having had all the success with this huge drum sound and everything, he decided we're putting the drums in the little room and we're going to put the guitar amps out here. And so, you know, we went from big daddy, which was almost a folk record in some ways to mm-hmm. now I'm in the band and we're making an electric guitar record. And so, I was kind of the new guy, the new toy on that record. And it's consequently, it's just, it's a pretty slamming rock record, which was a lot different than the one that came before. And the drum sounds different. You You were pretty young still too, right? Like that was that you, you, you didn't have a ton of experience in the studio. Like you've been in Joe Ely's band, but you you probably hadn't done a ton of records, especially like at the level that Mellencamp was working at, I'm guessing. I hadn't done any records at that level. No so way. So what was the process like for you, like as far as like figuring out how to do it? Uh, I, I he don't was producing know. it, right? Mellencamp produced well, that record? He, totally. He was yeah. the pr- producer. I mean, Mike Wanchick was a co-producer. He had a certain role that he filled in, but John was the def- definitely, that to me, his greatest strength was the production. The the way he got to you know converted these little folk songs into these rock anthems, the the way it wasn't always the same route that we took. It was the process was he he would vary it a lot, but that was to me his greatest strength was the way he uh, came at these songs. And so, you know, I had studied his records um, because I. I liked the production and, you know, I was really young and it wasn't like I'm going to produce records one day or mm-hmm. uh, whatever, but I, I did study how they orchestrated guitar parts. And, you know, even going back, I, I, I was always interested in layering guitar parts um, and tone. That was, I was always really focused on tone. And um, so even though I hadn't really made big records somehow or other, I felt like I was, prepared and i was confident (laughs) that would be you know i was confident at that time i felt confident and you know after sort of touring the world with joe ely for five years and in you know really becoming a lot better guitar player through that process um i felt like it was a great opportunity and i belonged there and it wasn't i wasn't scared 
I, yeah. I didn't really, I don't remember feeling nervous except when he came in in a bad mood and then everybody was like, Oh shit. Oh yeah. Watch out. And, um, but I mean, he would let you know immediately if he hated what you were doing. And if he didn't say anything, you just keep doing it. And, um, and was that a, was that like a, a conscious decision to make it a real guitar record? Like, was it, was, did he tell you like, we're doing this? He made that decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was like constantly throughout the process. It was like, if I had a good sound that I really liked, he would come out and goes, you know, I don't want to cuss too much on your podcast, but. Oh, please. He, you know, he would come out and, I, you know, God damn it. Turn the, you know, we just grab like the mid range knob on my Marshall and turn it all the way up or something. Do something to it, you know, <laughs> mess it up, make it rude. It's too, sounds too good, you know? Uh-huh. And, um, so I was like Richie Fliegler, a guy that worked at Marshall at the time. He was constantly sending me Marshalls. Really? You know, here's one we have that has more gain. And here's a re- here's a prototype for the reissue 100 watt plexi. And we were trying all these different things. But at the end of the day, I ended up using my 50, my old 50 watt and a 412 for almost everything. Really? And that was your live rig, essentially? Y- yeah. Well, when we went on the road, I used two hundred watt, old 100 watt heads and two 412 cabinets. Woo! That was another era. Pumping the wattage into the cottage. Let me tell you. Let yeah. me tell you. You know, you would get arrested. You would get fired and then arrested <laughs> in the same age for doing that. And uh, but it was a it was the real deal, man. It was like I got to do it. And you know, it was it was sort of the end, the tail end of that era of. Those were like real record sales were happening, and and like those those records must have had substantial budgets, right? Uh, they had substantial budgets, and they sold a lot, and yep. every show was sold out, and nobody sat down the entire from the first note. Twenty thousand oh. people in a basketball arena that never sat down for the Crazy. whole show. I mean, it was, and it was another thing, man. We brought a basketball goal on the road, and we would. <laughs> Before the gig, we'd be out in the parking lot playing like con- full contact basketball. And I think I'm the only one that didn't jam a finger on that tour. But we would play full contact basketball, go shower, do an hour set, come take a 15 minute break, come back and do another hour set. Yeah. And then shower. But during, I mean, like, I get up there the first gig and it's like, you know, I'm trying to be semi-polite and not overstep my boundaries. And on the break of the first night, he's like, he kind of yells at me, like, you got to move around, man. We got, uh-huh. you know, so I, so what they said, they said was, it's like a prevent defense, Dave. John goes over there. If John's over there and he goes over there, you go fill the gap. So uh-huh. I'm like running around the whole show i mean i'm literally running across around the stage you know the whole show did you have some kind of like primitive wireless rig at that point i had a i had a, a wireless rig but you, you know in the in the early we, 90s i did i had a, it was wow. wireless and the weird thing was is like it was way before you know side you know, like people would put everything in the monitor so when you ran over here it was just like and i you know i can remember a couple of times and it early in the tour, I got so far over to the other side of the stage that I couldn't hardly hear anything but this roar of the PA. Yeah. And I'm like, how are you supposed to lock in to, to the drums if you can't, you know, if you can't hear them? I mean, so it's like, tell me what you learned about playing like a giant ass rock show, because probably up to that point when you were playing with Ely, like no knock on him because I love his music, but uh, you were probably playing to some nights like to 20, 30 people in, in shitty bars, right? And then suddenly you're playing to 
20,000 people. What do you learn as a musician making that transition? Because that's that doesn't transition that easy. Well, I would I would go back a notch and say that there were a lot of nights with Ely where the show it was more like five hundred to five thousand people. Okay, is, is what we were playing to, and I learned so much in that regard about you know stepping to the front of the stage yeah. and laying it out there, and 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 also with Joe in Joe shows dynamics were such a huge part of the thing. I mean, with right. even you know in the use of space and all that with John. Dynamics were really important too. I mean, what you, you when you're playing a huge arena, you have to exaggerate everything. You have to when you're if you're going to come down, you have to really come down. But so it was a combination of ex, you have to exaggerate some of these things that you're trying to project. But also, it's like play to the person in the last seat at the top row. Oh, that's interesting. Think, yeah. You know, think like that, and uh, it's just everything's on a bigger scale. Yeah. So you mentioned that he doesn't hold back. Like if he thought that you were being too, uh, you know, holding back or whatever, he would come out and give you shit and say, turn it up, play more. Uh, at what point do you, f did you feel, or it, did you ever feel like you had that stuff like dialed where he was happy? You were like creatively getting what you wanted out of it. Was that something that you eventually got to or not or it was a day day by day thing. Yeah. I mean, it really was. I mean, and it could be when it was great, he would let you know, and it would be the greatest feeling in the world, you I know, bet. like, cause we were, we were, a, I mean, they were a, a band, a true band of, of they've been through so much together. And then I was brought, I was, they let me into their world. And then I became part of that too. And it was like the fam. It was like my, a family experience that maybe I hadn't had. And so a different kind of family experience, but when it was great, it was incredible. I mean, the feeling of it and he, and John would let you know, and you would be like, you know, you would be an equal and he would treat you as an equal. And like, we would do mixes and we'd all be up there. It was before automation and we would all be moving faders at different times. And cool. then, you know, and, um, part of that whole thing, but when it was not good, it was really unpleasant. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And, um, but that's just part of the way he works and part of the deal. And, you know, the work speaks for itself. He makes incredible Absolutely. records. And, um, but going back to this whole idea of one song a day, you know, you're just so focused on that song and in the moment. And then at the end of the day, we would do rough mixes you know, and on a big console, you have a monitor section. Yep. 
feeding stuff out to either the headphones or what you're actually hearing in the control. It's really what you're hearing in the control room, whereas the big faders are the levels that are going to tape. And everything yeah. was taped then. There was, there was no Pro Tools yet. Everything I did with him was on tape. So, you, you know, there wasn't like punching in was a big deal. Right. And um, so at the end of the day, they would do uh, a rough mix and they wouldn't break the board down. You know, they wouldn't convert. And now we're going to mix with faders. They would just do a quick rough mix with the little knobs up on the top of the Trident console. And, and uh, both records, at least and maybe part of Big Daddy, too, I don't know, but it, probably four of the ten, four or five of the ten songs, the mixes that ended up on the record were the rough mixes from that day because you're wow. so immersed in the emotion of the song that when you go back later, you can't beat it. They could, you you know, even though you technically it's supposed to sound better and you've got, you know, big faders and you're putting more compression and EQ on everything. Those rough mixes of when we were in the moment were almost half the record. Who is engineering? Because that says a lot about the engineer, too. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, Jay Healy did. Uh-huh. Uh, I want to say Jay Healy did. uh God, I can't remember. Well, I can tell you, I can't remember who did which record. David Leonard, Jay Healy, and Malcolm Byrne were involved in various. Yeah, Malcolm Byrne. That guy's a monster. Yeah, when Malcolm Byrne came in, it was like all sorts of different things started happening. I think that was Human Wheels, the third record. He brought Malcolm in, and then there were some really cool things that went, you know, that he contributed and the vibe. Uh, That's a much different record than whatever we wanted, which I like. Yeah lot i mean i really like that record but did you do that at mellencamp studio as well or was that somewhere else it was all done there oh well okay and he did like his early records at his own place too that's amazing well no they did they did the early stuff like the very first couple records were at rumbo in la and then they went to criteria in in miami yep um and so then he had his studio it was basically i think modeled after criteria okay it's awesome um, yeah it's an awesome room. Can you tell me a little bit about Austin? Like, so you moved there, I guess, when you were a teenager or something, or, um, you know, I don't know how old you were, but were you like a fully formed guitar player at that point? Or did you move to Austin at, like as you were learning to play? Well, I'm still trying to become a fully formed <laughs> guitar player. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I was good, but I wasn't great. And uh, just like, you know, that exp- the experiences I was telling you about in Nashville, that first day in the studio mm-hmm. and then... When I got here, it was like I got better immediately. Um, How old were you when you moved there? Early 20s, maybe. So you did move there for music? like it was. The I moved here for music. Everything I was listening to was coming out of Austin. I was listening to okay. the Fabulous Thunderbirds, Joe Ely, the Leroy Brothers. Who am I forgetting? You know, Stevie Vaughan. Uh, I just heard him. It, they were all here. And I, came, I had a friend that, I knew from Indiana that had moved here and she said, come on down and check it out. And I went down and I was like, after four nights, I flew home and I went, I literally packed up my Honda Civic really? turned the next morning and drove back. And then I slept on her floor for like three weeks <laughs> and then found a roommate and got an apartment. And I worked at a record store in the mall for three weeks. And then I got a gig. I got a gig with Lucinda Williams. That was my first gig. How did he get a gig? With, I guess she was, that was this like pre her first record. Pre, well, she put out a couple records, but, it, you know, like a lot of people think of her first record as Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. No, no, no. 
but she had done a lot more before that. So is, so, this, is this pre-GERF? Pre-GERF. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Pre-GERF in uh, 1983. Wow. So I, I moved to town and, and uh, I... What, what kind of what gigs were you playing with Lucinda in 1983? Funky bar gigs. Uh-huh. But, but within like a couple of weeks, I was in a car on my way to new Orleans with her. And we played the jazz and heritage festival. Nice. And it was, uh, a life changing experience, you know, being it, growing up in Kentucky, Austin was one thing, new Orleans was another. Totally. And I was with people that knew the town inside and out. So we were going to, we were not going to the tourist places for dinner. It was, you right. know, and then you're, uh, we stayed in the quarter at a hotel and grandmaster flash, Richard Thompson and Roy Orbison were all in our hotel. Come on. I remember being in a van. We, we, we rode over to Roy Orbison's gig with him and his band and his van, uh, to, he played on the boat on, on the yeah. river. Um, so that experience was just like, all of a sudden it was like, this is, you know, that'll, that'll I sort of found you. paradise at that. You know, it was felt like there's like another level of living here and I just lucked into it, you know, and I lived in an apartment that was $175 a month. Oh man. And then Lucinda, we got another guitar player, Derek O'Brien, who was like the house guitar player at Antones. And we became great friends in like no time. And he gets me in Lou Ann Barton's band like immediately. So, so you're in both or you had to quit Lucinda's. I was in both and would kind of, you know, finagle back and forth. But then as soon as I get in Luann Barton's band, I'm playing at Antone's like on Monday and Tuesdays and Thursdays and stuff, opening up for Albert Collins or Albert King or Otis Rush and Clifford Antone, like the most generous man in the world, slipping everybody like $300, you know, to play for an hour. And um, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a, an unbelievable time to be in Austin because it was like that every night. And, and I went to Antone's every night that I wasn't playing somewhere or going to see someone else at one of the other 10 places that had great stuff every <laughs> night back then. So the so Anton's was really like all it's cracked up to be in those early 80, early to mid 80s. It was just like hopping and the Vons were there and uh, Denny Freeman and like that whole scene must have just been bananas. It was, it was, it was magic. Yeah. Yeah. Truly magic. And so I had to get my thing together really quick there, but uh, you know, I got it, man. It was like, there's a guy here named Bill Campbell, a legendary blues guitar player. who's can be pretty cantankerous. I, he somehow or other, I guess he liked the way I played, but he, he made me feel welcome and Denny and all these guys, they made me feel welcome. Like I could do this. And it was like, it was very generous. Derek O'Brien, who's still one of my favorite blues guitar players on the planet. And they sort of, they sort of took you under their wing. A, a, yeah, they did. They, they yeah. and they gave me the vote of confidence, you know, of a, 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 a feeling of confidence that I could do this. And, um, so great. And then I got in Ely's band and then that's where it was like, okay, so you were touring the, the world yep. you know, and, uh, and not a real luxurious faction necessarily, but it was just, that's a fast trajectory, like getting yeah, you know, from well, one gig to another. And, yeah. uh, I mean that, that teaches you how to play with a, a songwriter real fast. Uh, it was a, that's where I, be, I feel like I became a musician in Joe's band. Uh-huh. And that's where, you know, not fully formed, but on another, you know, yeah, he taught me so much. It was, it was truly amazing. How what would much. you say you learned from him the most? 
um, how to play with dynamics, how to play uh, with the singer, how to honor the song, how to work a crowd, yeah. how to never leave anything on the stage, even if there's only five people out there, how to um, evaluate like opportunities that come your way, artistic uh, or commercial. And he always went for the artistic in the long term view. That was that was that was as big as anything, you know, as much as he taught me about actually playing music, his thought process in being an artist, the way being a true artist who still has a vibrant career, you know, the long-term view, that was a, that was a, uh, as important as anything I learned from Joe. And he, he let you actually produce, co-produce his records, right? I co-produced the first record. I'm That's like badass, 20, man. 25, 24, 25 years old. And he gives me co-production credit on it. And yeah. It, I'm like, you know, I don't so know if I fully appreciated it at the time, but you know, yeah. it, it was, it was, uh, that's generous. It was generous. And were those records done pretty quickly? Like it was the live band in the studio and you just kind of knocked it out. It, it was like, he had a little cabin and we were recording on like an eight, you know, 16 track tape deck to begin with. And then some primitive digital thing down eight ats. And you're like, on his first, on Lord of the Highway, the first record I made with him, there's a song called Letter to L.A., which is yeah. like sort of this, got this long solo and Bobby Keys plays a solo and I play a solo. I cut that track. He had this little thing, this Yamaha headphone amplifier. I don't mean, it was not for guitar, it was for headphones. <laughs> and I plugged my guitar into the headphone amplifier and got it to the store and we wrote, sent that to tape and that's the guitar tone. Really? There's no guitar amp. Yeah. And, like you know, a, people are like, man, your tone on that's incredible. Well, when we cut it live, you know, live at Liberty Lunch, that is a hundred watt Marshall and it is a little different animal. I mean, <laughs> that's just the way it was back then. And like, I remember, you know, th stuff would happen. Like I came out one day and he had a shotgun in his hand and, you know, a, a water moccasin had come up through the toilet in the studio oh and I got into the plumbing and, Another day I came in, he goes, and he had this terrible look on his face. And I'd just gotten this gold top PRS guitar and I left it on a guitar stand the night before we were working. And I come the next day and he's got this terrible look on his face. And I said, what, what's up? He goes, the air conditioner fell on your guitar. And I said, what are you, <laughs> you're joking. You're joking. He goes, no, I'm not joking. He said, we were moving the air conditioner out and there were fire ants in there and they bit he and the other guy, the fire ants all stung him at once and they dropped the air conditioner on my brand new PRS guitar. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. We glued it back together. I took it to the guitar shop and they, for 30 bucks, they glued the headstock back together and it was perfect. And that was the first time that happened. But, you know, <laughs> stuff like that would happen all the time. It's like when we drove around the country in a van and a trailer for five years. That's hardcore, man. Yeah, love it. You mentioned the idea of building tracks was bit was big with you, and I'm guessing like Jimmy Page would have been somebody that did that that inspired you early on. Were there some other people that were doing guitaristic things that affected you as a youngster that that you brought over into that record making world that you ended up doing so much in? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Jimmy Page, the Stones, you know, that kind of weave back and forth between the two guitar players. Yeah. ACDC, the whole left right thing, mm -hmm. you know the left hard panning guitars and making them speak that way. Um, I'm going to forget. I mean, I'm going to forget a lot of stuff, but you know, later on uh, John Leventhal, 
Um, oh, yeah. I mean, the, the Tom Petty records, I, I, I thought that they their guitar parts were really well thought out and they had a, their own sonic space. Uh, but Leventhal, I think, is still the master of layering parts. Um, but that yeah. came much later, you know, that Sean Colvin record, A Few Small Repairs. I was like, I mean, I still... I'm still trying to learn more about uh, more about music and and uh, getting better at it. And um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, uh, Jimmy Page was a master arranger. He was, yeah. He doesn't get enough credit for that. I don't think he doesn't. He he doesn't. A, a brilliant arranger. And it's deep. There's a lot of parts, a lot of tracks, a lot of parts, a lot of thought, a lot of. And you know, even like if you go listen to like Leonard Skinner records, like those first couple of records that Al Cooper produced, the guitar parts are brilliant. The way the tones yeah. are varied and, you know, you sell up some of those tones on their own in the Beatles to some extent. Like if you hear the isolated tracks for Sergeant Pepper, there's so much trouble on the guitar, but when they mixed it down, it had its spot. So that, that was another thing about layering parts is to, you know, it's, you can't listen you can't just consider the tone by itself. It's how is it going to work with totally. everything else that's going on? And it's, it's, uh, it can be time consuming, but you also, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And the quicker you become at it, the more you get hired. Yeah. You mentioned that Austin was, you know, like this amazing scene going on in the eighties and you're still there now. You've got a weekly gig. You, you know, your focus has changed obviously, and you, you're doing more of your own solo stuff. You've put out a, a string of great albums over the last 15 years. Uh, live record was the last one that I, that I'm aware of. Um, mm -hmm. Although you played on that Edgar Winter record recently. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yep. what, what, tell me your thoughts about Austin today. Like, obviously it's a wildly different town. Everyone knows like it's getting more expensive. A lot of the musicians have had to leave. Is there a remnant of that eighties Austin left? It seems like to me, it's still there a little bit, you know, sort you of, know, what's your like feeling? The, the continental club and, uh, the Saxon pub or, or, and sea boys. And there's, so, there's some places where you still get the vibe, you know, you can go here Jimmy Vaughn on a Friday or Saturday night, if he's not on the road, he comes down and plays. And um, there are still, there's a, still a great singer songwriter community here. The blues thing is much, there's much less of the, of the really, I think you've got the next generation of a lot of things coming in. And so to me, it's always more interesting in the earlier iterations of almost any art form or st style. Um, but there are new things happening too. You know, it's like but black Pumas, um, mm -hmm tons of bands that are doing really cool stuff. Um, and it all to me has a kind of this earthier more organic quality than if it was coming out of New York or yeah. uh, Miami or whatever. Um, is there, are there, are there people playing like five, six nights a week still, or is that yeah. gone? The, the guy that plays drums with me now is a young guy named Michael Davila. He works every night. Okay. At least one gig every night. And a lot of people work two or three gigs a day. I mean, it the the i make the the cold hard truth the facts are is that i make a set the same money for a live gig now that i did 30 years ago here right and i'm not talking in just adjusted for inflation i mean literally, <laughs> literally the same the same. money yeah. and so the you know if you're making all your money on live gigs you got to work all the time and uh, and luckily for me that's i don't I have a lot of other things that I do and I work in my studio a ton playing on stuff for people and, and I teach some and I 
involved with Paul Reed Smith and we have projects going. Um, so in, in writing songs and yeah. some producing, you know, but if I, if I only played live gigs, It'd I'd be, be grand. I'd have to really work a lot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, there was a time in my life where I did, I mean, I was out every, if I wasn't, I just assumed be playing a gig cause I was out every night, but you know, it's at some point you get to, I mean, me, I've gotten to the point where I don't want to be on the road all the time or playing every night right. out. But the weekly gig must be very fulfilling at this point. The weekly you. gig is incredibly fulfilling. And to me, it's the bare minimum to keep my chops at a certain level because right. the chops that I use to play on records are different chops mm -hmm. than I do to do my gig. And I don't want to ever, I don't want to lose either one of them, but it's, there's no way I could play my gig once every three months. Right. It, it, so the one night a week is the bare minimum for me where by the end of the gig, I kind of got my, I'm back in shape. You're back. Yeah. Um, Carries you over for the week. But it's very fulfilling and it's, yeah. it, it really does. Uh, I mean, you know, you can get, I can get too esoteric about this, but really it is a very uh, rewarding, you know, that's full improvising mode. Um, mm -hmm. which is, I just always loved that. We we'll call it jamming, whatever. I mean, I played with the yeah. Allman brothers for three weeks. I, I grew up listening to that music and, um, I get to fully, I get to fully do my thing and the audience goes with us no matter what. And we, and because I've been changing out players so much, there's kind of a limited set list. And so there's a lot of the same songs every week, like, mm -hmm. like the set list doesn't vary that much, but they're completely different. The, the I mean, so, you know, so, so your band is a rotating cast these days, or do you have a fairly solid group? I have three different bass players, two different keyboard players and one okay. drummer right now. Okay. So it, and I just really encourage, I, I don't say anything. <laughs> I right. just like, I want you to play the way you bring your personality. That's great. And if you don't want to play, if you just want to play electric piano all night long and you don't want to play any B3, you don't even have to ask, you know, do yeah. your thing. And so they're all so good that, um, I mean, sometimes it's like, I feel like I'm definitely the worst guy up here. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good, you know, that's, it's good to feel like that though. Sometimes. It is. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I've always, well, you know, I used to be, it went from being the youngest guy in the band <laughs> and like overnight, all of a sudden I'm the old guy here Yeah. to, you know, but I've, I, I, I've thrived in, in, on being around people that are better than me in my whole life. And so to, to, I mean, there are, there are skills that I have that they will develop, mm -hmm. but you know, they're, uh, fully capable of playing giant steps right. and, but can still play groovy and low down, you know? And so I'm, I am not fully capable of playing giant steps. <laughs> and, and so there are times when it gets, you know, it gets out there and I love it, man. It's like, I'd love to see it one of these awesome. days. If I ever get down that way, I'll, I'll I love it. What night is it at the Saxon? Uh, every Tuesday that I'm in town. Okay. Almost every Tuesday I'm in town. I'm down there. It's okay. an early show. Come okay. on. Eat um, my bowl of granola at eight, eight 30. One last thing before we split, I don't talk a lot of gear on this show. It's just not really like my thing or whatever, but I, I do find it fascinating that you, you mentioned playing a Paul Reed Smith back in Joe Ely days. So that's like going back to the early eighties. I didn't even know they existed back then. 85 was when he went, you know, public or he became. So was, did he work at Fender? No. Okay. He just, 
was doing his own he, thing. He built guitars on his own and it was all like a custom order thing, but he became, they became a company yeah. uh, that uh, a legit public company in 1985. And I have a 1985 PRS. So I have been with them for, uh, we're coming up on 33 years. Is he in Austin? No, he's in Annapolis, Maryland. Okay. And, uh, um, like how did it come about in the first place? You just came across his guitar or he sent I, it to I, you? I showed up here in Austin with a, a Fender Stratocaster. That was the only guitar I had. And everybody in Austin <laughs> played a Stratocaster. And yeah. something inside me said, you need to find something different. You need to do something different. And I, don't, I mean, I don't think I really, that was like a subconscious feeling or something. It wasn't like a yeah. conscious decision to do that. But I was looking through Guitar Player Magazine one day and here's this seafoam green PRS. And I was like, that looks cool. And I found one, a guy had one in Dallas and I went up and um, bought it. I actually didn't buy it. I didn't have the money. I traded at the, in the meantime, I had bought a 59 Fender Esquire Ooh. with like curly maple neck and everything. Oh. It was like, and it was like all, you know, I think I think that was $600 back then, which was, I bought it at a store. You could put it on account and pay it off. But, sure. So I took that up there with me. The, the PRS was 900 and the case was $100. And I traded it to the, I traded, I said, I don't have $1,000. Would you take this guitar? Would you trade me? And he goes, well, I can let you have the guitar, but I can't let you have the case. Let's buy the case. So I had to give him the, I had, a, I had a hundred bucks and so I bought the case and traded him the 59 Esquire. Oh man. To get the guitar. But once I got it, it was like, okay. So I did you it. immediately just totally bond with that guitar? Totally. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. And that was the year I joined Joe Ely's band. So it was kind of like this telly on steroids that vibe. And it, are they similar to, to what they are now? Like it's, it's sort of a, it's got elements of a Les Paul elements of a, yeah, they are. Kind of they are. Although what I'm playing now to me is a lot more refined and a lot better for what I do. But it's essentially looks if the average person looked at it, it would you wouldn't think it was much different at all. It was, you know, he had the body shape, the headstock shape, the tremolo system, which works incredibly well and does the Bigsby thing like I like. I don't want the dive bomb. I just want the Bigsby yeah. thing. And um yeah, that was like right when I got the gig with Ely and then I got an old Marshall 50 watt amp and it's like everything changed, you know, I got, and then I started just kind of, Joe was just really encouraging, find your, do your thing, do whatever, yeah. whatever feels right to you, Yeah, do it. And then I just started kind of like inch towards having my own. So when you were out with Ely, did you just take the one guitar and that was your main axe for all those years? When I was with Ely and we were on the road all the time, I did, I got a second uh, PRS in 1987 and I would take two guitars uh, and then I would always take two heads and a speaker cabinet because when you're on the road that much and you have a, stuff riding around in a trailer things break Yeah, yeah. so and I, I always had a backup I don't take backups anymore and <laughs> luckily it's not been a big problem yeah oh that's good but it was literally just a, one guitar and then a backup in case you had to have it but you weren't using like different tunings or anything like that it was mm -hmm. just the one wow amazing no, I mean, I would, you know, I would use different tunings at home or if I made records with him or capos, but live, it was all standard tuning. And and did that carry through with Mellencamp? Or did you continue no. just playing the PRS? Or you were using like tellies and strats at that point as well? Well, a whole lot of PRS, but but 
a whole lot of other things, baritones and tellies, a, a lot of capos and a lot of open tunings. Right, right. Okay. So that's where that's where I really got into that whole thing. Yeah. Of uh, realizing, ah, you can widen the palette, like yeah. you know, almost uh, just exponentially and, by taking advantage of all that. And at the Saxon, do you just bring the PRS down, or do you bring a whole arsenal? Nope. I bring a PRS and then I have one that's tuned down a whole step that I use for a couple of songs uh, that when I play those songs, I have to bring a second guitar, mm -hmm. which is like, is that just, just for your vocal? Is that the reason that you do them in a different key? Uh, or the, it's, or the... it's because they sound, it sounds, you know, one of them definitely sounds, uh, it's an instrumental that's, that just sounds a lot meaner. Yep. You know, play, it's in D and playing it out of an E position with the low E string, it just sounds a lot meaner. And the other one is a song that is a vocal tune, but the voicings lend themselves to it's in C, but it sounds better in a D position. Okay. And then sometimes I'll play, like I'll just play a shuffle on the, on that guitar that you know out of an E position, but it's in D. It just sounds leaner and meaner. And if it's if it's a trio. Sometimes it can just be super fat and fun to yeah. do that. Yeah. Well, I hope to uh, I hope to see you playing those crazy shuffles one of these days. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks so much, man. For I mean, I could talk to you all day, but this has been great to hear some of these stories and hear about your your uh, history and your career and all that. And um, thanks for thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. That was my conversation with David Grissom. I hope you enjoyed it. And we're going to see you in another couple weeks. We'll be right back here with another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.